Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another one of our weekly podcasts. My name is Richard. On behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. This week, we're going to be hearing from Pastor Chris as we take a look at finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Well, now with all that said and done, let's go ahead and dive into this week's message with Pastor Chris. to be moving from the Pentateuch deeper and deeper into the Old Testament. So what is the Pentateuch? The first five books of the Bible or the books of Moses. And so we've been researching and looking and searching out for Christ in the Old Testament. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And our main text for today is going to begin at verse 1. 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting at verse 1. But before we get into there, I just want to recap kind of what we've already examined about Christ and then do one honorable mention before we go on. Princess, can you turn the heater down? It's really hot up here. Thank you. So uh, we're going to recap and then do an honorable mention. So where's the first time we saw Jesus in the Bible? the white spaces before Genesis 1, right? Like Jesus is like over here. Way before it was said, let there be, Jesus already was. And we see in, in John chapter 1 and in Colossians and Philippians and throughout the New Te- or Old Testament, Jesus is that creator God. He is the one that said, let there be, and it was. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in unity, in fellowship to create the heavens and the earth. So we see Jesus as the creator God. Secondly, how else have we seen Jesus? And what other ways have we examined the Lord Jesus Christ? So he is our creator. He is the bread of life, our sustainer, our living water. So what is that to say? Christ did what for us? There we are. We have examined that Christ is our redeemer. And we started all the way at the beginning. Genesis chapter three, verse what? 15, there we go. That the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. Then we get to the genealogy, chapter five. You take Adam to Noah, you take the meanings of their names and there you have the gospel message. Does anybody remember the gospel in Genesis chapter five? You can even shoot out a couple words. That's fine. We'll put it together. So no, or Adam means man. So man was appointed mortal and sorrowful. And that's the gospel that human beings are basically not good. We're basically bad. Inner cities would be utopias if man was basically good because the more people would gather, the better things would be. But our inner cities, as you know, it's not the case because the Bible says man is appointed mortal and sorrowful. So what does God have to do? The blessed God shall come down teaching and in his death, the despairing will have. And then what does Noah mean? rest or comfort. So we have the gospel as Jesus, our redeemer in Genesis chapter five. We have the illustration in Genesis 22. Remember the father takes the only begotten up the mountain, the wood of the sacrifice is upon his back. And in Abraham's situation, the angel of the Lord said, stop. 
and God the Father's situation when his only begotten went up, it pleased the Lord to crush him. Jesus, our Redeemer. We see again Jesus, our Redeemer, as the Passover lamb. What does it mean to be redeemed? to be bought back, to be purchased from slavery. The children of Israel were Jews where, Jews, slaves where, Egypt. They were bond slaves. And how were they freed? Through the blood of the lamb. Jesus, our redeemer. We look at the, the standard of the serpent that would be judged. And Jesus says in John three fourteen, just like the son of man is to be high and lifted up. So we see Christ, our Redeemer. We saw Christ in the, the feasts, the Passover feast, in the unleavened bread. What does unleavened bread represent? A life without what? Sin. And then the Pentecost, 50 days later, what happens at Pentecost or the, first, uh, the feast of first fruits? Well, Acts chapter 2 Peter stands up and he declares Christ as Messiah. And what happens on the day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit comes down, a refreshment, a new beginning, a new start. We see Jesus in the feast. We see Jesus in the law, both the civil and the moral. It shows and reveals Christ's character. What's another way in which we saw Jesus? Creator, redeemer, what else? Friend, okay. We haven't necessarily got to that in Genesis, although he is. What about in Genesis chapter 17? God is giving Abraham the Abrahamic covenant and he tacks on something else. And he says, through you, you will have what? Kings. Kings will come through your line. And I, in Genesis chapter 49, we looked at Jesus as our king. Remember Israel, also known as Jacob, had 12 sons, and now he's on his deathbed, and he's, he's giving blessings and cursings over each one of his sons, which is representative of each one of the tribes. And Reuben, you know, Reuben was a, a bad guy, and he was knocked off, and the second was knocked off, and the third was knocked off, and you get to the fourth son, and the fourth son is named Judah. And of the tribe of Judah, they were to be what? Kings. It was the royal line. It was the one in which they were to rule and there were to be the lions of Israel. So we have Jesus as king and we're gonna look at that even deeper today. And one thing I wanna do as an honorable mention because it would be bad of us if we did not mention this is Jesus as high priest. We have a very major problem. If the, the kings come from Judah, and what do the priests come from? How can Jesus be both priest and king? Impossible. He cannot do it. In fact, one king of Israel tried to do it and God cut him off. So Genesis tells you and I how Jesus can be both king and priest. And so very quickly, open up to Genesis 14, and just keep your finger there in 2 Samuel, and we'll get there. But in Genesis 14, chapter 7, I'm sorry, Genesis 14, verse 17, we have Abraham who just wins a war. 
And we pick it up there in verse 17, it says, then after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley, in verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. He blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abraham gave him a tenth of all fascinating character. Now, this guy Melchizedek, does anybody know what his name means? It means the king of righteousness. And notice where he's from. He is the king over what city? Salem, the ancient city for Jerusalem. And what does Salem mean? In Arabic, it's Salam. In Hebrew, it's Shalom. What does Salam or Salem mean? peace. So Melchizedek is the king of righteousness residing over the king of peace. And what does he bring? Abram. Bread and wine. Where do we see that before? Communion. And then what does Abram do? Gives a tithe of all that he has. So this now begins to explain how Jesus can be both king and priest. When we get to Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 1, it says this, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham appointed a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Now listen to Melchizedek. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Then you go down in verse, in chapter seven, and it says, Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek. So here's the question, who came first, Abraham or Moses? Who came first, Abraham or Moses? Abraham came way first. So here, here's what the author is saying. If the order or the priesthood of Melchizedek, who served God way before the Levitical priesthood ever served God, Hebrews 7 says the order of Melchizedek or that priesthood is far greater. And then it breaks it down. You know, the Levites, they had to sacrifice for their own sin. Jesus, our great high priest, never had to sacrifice for his own sin, and so on and so forth. And so we see in Genesis, Jesus, Jesus as our great high priest. Now let's fast forward. Let's look at the king, and let's look at his kingdom. So uh, Moses dies, and then who replaces them? Joshua and 
Caleb, and they go into the promised land. They go around Jericho, and the walls of Jericho fall down. God then institutes judges or rulers over his people and prophets and prophetesses to be able to speak the words of God so that Israel was a monotheistic, theocratic country, meaning there was one God, and that God ruled. The, the word L-E-L in Hebrew is God, and Israel means to be governed or ruled by God. They were to be a nation that was so different from the rest of the world, not governed by kings and presidents and prime ministers and Congress and senators and all the rest, but by God himself. Well, the morale in the country is low. People are upset. People don't like the way things are going. So what do you think the people of Israel do? They begin to get upset. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4, it says this. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, behold, you have grown old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you but they have rejected me from being king over them. And then like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I have brought them from Egypt, even to this day, in the day they have forsaken me and served other gods. When did they forsake God and serve other gods in the wandering wilderness? That's right, when they took the gold that God blessed them with, melted it down and worshiped a calf. So God goes on and says, now then listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. So God says, I want to rule over my people, but if they don't want me, they want to reject me. Okay, they can have a man who's going to rule over them. They can have a king just like all the other nations, but this is what the king is going to do. Verse 10. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked him of a king. And he said, this is the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and to equip for his chariots. So what is the king going to do to the people first? He's going to take the common person, the common man, and he's going to send them to war. It's never the White House's kids that go to war. It's always the common person's kids. It's never the king's children that are on the front lines. It's always the common person's children. God is saying, when you get a king, they're going to send your children off to war to fight his battle for his own purposes. 
Verse 13, what happens to our women? He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. The ladies are going to be servants. They're going to be serving whomever they are called to serve. So your freedom is going to be gone. Verse 14, he will take the best of your fields and of your vineyards and of your olive groves and give them to his servants. So he's going to come and he's going to unilaterally take what is yours. Verse 15, he will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. He will also make you a male servant and female servants and make your best young men and your donkeys and use them for work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. So like any politician, it's just like the DNC, you're gonna pay more in taxes, you're gonna get much less back and you're gonna be enslaved to big brother. This is what the people were asking for. And and then it says, verse 19, nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them to the Lord's hearing. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint a king over them. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. So now it's election cycle. Now it's time to vote in a new king. And so who do the nation of Israel choose? They don't choose the smartest person. They don't choose the most godliest person. They don't definitely don't choose the most capable person. They choose the person that looks the best. I mean, things don't change. <laughs> things don't change at all. And so here Samuel, who was sponsored by a, or Saul, was sponsored by a shampoo company because he was head and shoulders above the rest. He was gorgeous to look at, and his dad was a man of valor. So he comes from a, a prestigious family, and this guy looks fantastic. He has a smile like the sunrise. He's probably maybe 6'5". You know, he's just a strapping young man. And everybody says, I want him as our king. But you know the story. Saul did exactly what God had called, uh, told the people the king would do. He taxed them. He sent them off to war. He took from them. He enslaved his own people. It's a, you know, normal politician doing what a normal politician does. And so God is upset with him. God is angry at him. And then we get to, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. So Saul is not getting the job done. Saul is actually rebelling against God. And so God has another plan. I have my own king who I'm going to choose. Now, Saul was from what tribe? Nope. He, there you go. 
And the New Testament Saul, also named Paul the Apostle, came from the tribe of Benjamin, no doubt named after the first king of Israel, Saul. Saul was a Benjamite. The priestly kinghood, or the priestly kings, priestly, the kings are to come from what tribe? Judah. He was an illegitimate king who was an illegitimate leader. And he did horrible things in Israel. And God said, enough is enough. I have my own guy. Go to the, the house of Jesse. He's a Bethlehemite. So that means he's from the town of what? Bethlehem. Hem is uh, bread and, and Beth or Beth is house. So from the house of bread. Who else came from a small town called Bethlehem? Hey, we're starting to connect the dots a little bit now, right? So go to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. So Uncle Jesse has a full house. He has seven kids. <laughs> I know, it's so bad. And so, <laughs> so uh, the prophet Samuel goes in there and he says, all right, son number one, nope, that's not him. Son number two, not him. Son number three, four, five, six, not him, not him. And then Samuel says in verse uh, 12, or verse 11 of 1 Samuel 16, Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the children? And he said, there remains yet the youngest and behold, he is tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. And now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of the brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul for an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. So now we have the legitimate king from the tribe of Judah, David. David does good. The kingdom of Israel is expanding. They've become very powerful at this point. They've become very wealthy. And then we get to our text for today, 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 1. Now it came about when the king, that's David, lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tents of curtains. Now, what's on the flag of Lebanon? Does anybody know what the flag of Lebanon has on it? The cedar tree. And in Lebanon, they have the most beautiful cedar trees. They're notorious for these gorgeous trees. And David's palace is built with these cedars from Lebanon. His establishment no doubt, incredible. And he's looking at his amazing house, and then he's looking at where God resides. He's saying, I have a palace, and God's in a tent. Something's wrong. So he's telling Nathan, I want to build a house for God. And Nathan misspeaks and says in verse 3, then Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant, David, thus says the Lord, are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. 
but I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Basically, God is saying, I didn't call you, David, to build me a house. Have I even asked the children of Israel even once to build me a great house? No, I didn't ask for that. But the Lord was so touched in verse 8. God now gives what is known as the Davidic covenant. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, and verses 8 through 9a is what God has done already with David. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. So God says, because he's about to say in in this incredible promise. And so God is telling David, look, remember what I've already done for you. That's going to be nothing compared to what I am going to do for you. So what did God do for David? He took David from the outhouse to the penthouse. He went from the shepherd's fields into the king's palace. So verses 8 through 9a, what God has already done for David. Now 9b through 11 is what God will do for David. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. So one, God will make David a great name. Number two, I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them and they may that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed nor will i nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly even from the day that i commanded judges to be over my people israel so number 2 god's going to bring the people to the the land and they're going to have rest where was that from what covenant is that from Abrahamic covenant. So, so far we've seen multiple covenants. We have number one, the Adamic covenant. And that is a a bilateral, conditional, a temporal covenant. And that was between God and Adam. And he says, tend the field, do the, you know, name the animals, tend the garden, and do not eat of that tree. And the day that you surely eat of it, you will die. So it was conditional. As long as you don't do this, things will be okay with you. And as soon as Adam violated it, it was done. Then the second covenant in the Bible is the Noahic covenant, the covenant or agreement God had with Noah. And what was that agreement? He came out of the ark. He built an altar to the Lord. He sacrificed. And then what did God say? with water again. And that is a unilateral, unconditional, eternal covenant. God's doing it. It has no conditions tied to it. And God promises it eternally. He will never again flood the world with water. The third covenant as we come through Genesis is the Abrahamic covenant, the sweet peas. God will make a a place, a, yep, and a, And a promise that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now, the Davidic covenant is adding on top of that. 
Number one, David's name will be great. Number two, the people will get the land and they will live in peace. And then we see the third aspect, verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, that means when you die, David, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So I'll make your name great, David. I'm gonna let your people dwell in the land safely. And then number three, I am going to set up your kingdom forever. And so verses 13 now through 16 is the details of how God is actually going to do it. So when David dies, verse 12, uh, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish his throne and kingdom forever. So who is God referring to here? No, because in verse 15, 14, it says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as soon as I take to, as, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. So God says, there's going to be a son that's going to come after you. He's going to rule and he's going to reign and he's going to build my house. And even when he's disobedient, I'm not going to cut him off like all the others. Hey, there we go. Solomon. Solomon. Did I? Oh, did you? So check this. This is incredible because God is blessing David through Solomon. And this is fascinating to me because who was Solomon's mom? Yeah, Bathsheba. Now think about that. In David's greatest sin, out of that comes this incredible blessing. And it just, and when I was studying, it just reminds me of how bad you and I can be and how bad we can mess up and how far we can sin and how much we stumble and just blind to what's really going on and how faithful God is that, you know, all things are working together for good. No matter what it is, God will make it work for good. He will cause his will and his glory to shine through. And it's just so incredible to see the grace and goodness of God, even working through our biggest mistakes. And we see Solomon, you know, having this incredible promise now given to him. So 1 Chronicles chapter 22 and verse 5 gives us the answer, Solomon. David said, 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 5, David said, my son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the house is to be built for the Lord shall be exceedingly magnificent, famous and glorious throughout all lands. Therefore, now I will make preparation for it. So David made ample preparations before his death. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
Verse six, then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, my son, I intended to build a house to the name to, I intended to build a house to the name of the Lord, my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars and you shall not build a house to my name because you have shed blood, so much blood on the earth before me. Behold, a son will be born to you who shall be a man of rest and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side and his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name and he shall be my son and I will be his father. I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. So David gets all the uh, materials And Solomon builds the temple, the house of the Lord. He prays over it and the Holy Spirit comes down and the presence of God fills the temple. Going back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 14 and 15. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. So God went to Solomon and asked Solomon, request one thing of me and I will give it to you. And Solomon requested what? And God said, because you haven't requested gold or long life or fortune and fame, I'm going to give you all of it. So Solomon was the richest man to have ever lived. There are some biblical estimates that he owned approximately over a trillion dollars in today's, uh, you know, currency. Thank you. Which would make him by far the richest man on planet earth. He was wealthy, he lived long, and he had many, many experiences, just like God said. And then he goes on. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. So God says of Solomon, I'm going to bless him. And even when he walks away from me, I am not going to forsake him like I did Saul. When you read 1 Kings and 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, what you get over and over is he was a wicked king and God got rid of him. He was a wicked king and God got rid of him. He was a wicked king and God got rid of him. Solomon was a wicked king. And yet, because of this covenant to David, a unilateral unconditional, eternal covenant to David, God says, I will show loving kindness to him. And this is how bad this fool Solomon was. First Kings chapter 11, verse one. First Kings 11, one. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. What does the law of Moses say? Don't go after foreign women. Why? Because they're going to turn your hearts after their foreign gods. What does Solomon do? Eh, the word of God doesn't apply to me. I'm the king. So he loved many foreign women, the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and the Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they shall surely turn your heart away after their gods. He had 700 wives, 
princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wife turned his heart away from other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, How do you worship her? Drunken sexual orgies, the goddess of the Sidonians. And after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Amorites. How do you worship Milcom? You you sacrifice your child to him. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as his father David. Then Solomon built a high place high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. If you remember from our abortion uh, message, Molech was the god in which they would take little, little babies, their brand new infants, and they would sacrifice them, murder them to the god of prosperity. I know we don't do that anymore. But if we did, God would not be pleased. So Solomon basically took Roe versus Wade and implemented it into Israel. So God was not pleased at all. And yet, did God get rid of Solomon? Why? Because God promised to David. God's word is true. But what happened when Solomon died? Everything fell apart. And here we get from the short-term prophecy of the Davidic covenant to the long-term fulfillment of the coming king. Verse 16 says this, for your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Three things here. The house is uh, representative of David's lineage. A son of David will rule and reign forever. And the kingdom, meaning he'll have subjects who will honor him. There will be a kingdom where subjects will honor the son of David forever. And then three, that king will rule from his throne forever, meaning he has the power and the authority to rule over his subjects. But when Solomon died, what happened to Israel? Immediately what happened to Israel? They split right away. As soon as he died, God says, I'm done. And they split. The northern uh, kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of? Made up of two tribes. Benjamin Benjamin and Judah. Benjamin and Judah made the two tribes of Judah. And God, how is God going to do this? The Assyrians fell in 750s or 700s. The northern, uh, the northern kingdom completely was dissipated. And then in 550, King Nachbunasir, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came. And what did he do with Judah? Wiped them out. So three things. Either God lied with verse 16. Either God failed with verse 16, or God is doing something completely different with verse 16. If the Bible stopped right here, we wouldn't know. We could assume God failed. We could assume God lied, or we could assume God is doing a big picture thing, but we cannot put the dots together. 
Thank God we have the rest of the Bible. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it tells us about the son of David, this coming king. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Now, we talk about that at the Christmas season. Who is that referring to? Amen. Jesus Christ. And the government will rest on his shoulders. So verse 6a and b are short-term prophecy and then this long-term. And the government will rest on his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it God is going to do it because it is a unilateral unconditional covenant Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 5 now what's fascinating about Jeremiah he was known as the what? The weeping prophet. Why? I just said it like two minutes ago. I got ahead of myself. Why? Why is he the weeping prophet? Why though? I literally said it like a minute ago. Because Babylon is coming and they're going to go to Judah under King Nebuchadnezzar. And what happens to, ba- and to Judah? They're taken away into captivity. So Jeremiah has witnessed the kingdom crashed. There is no northern kingdom, and now there is no Judah kingdom. It's completely desolate. And through that, through staring at the barrel of the gun, Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch. So David's the root, obviously, and the branch is the righteous one. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Now, God's doing something, but we don't quite know what. In Zephaniah chapter 3, let's see if I can find that one. Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 14. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away all your enemies. What was the promise to David? He will make him a great name. Number two, Israel will do what? Dwell in the land. How? Safely safely. Zephaniah is saying, the Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. 
In that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord, your God, is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Now, Zephaniah 3 tells us that the king of Israel is who? The Lord. Now we're getting even more information as to this coming king, the son of David. Now, if anybody has quick fingers, flip over to Matthew 1 and read Matthew 1, 1. Say it louder, brother. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The very, 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 very first verse in the New Testament is Matthew writing to a group of Jews. And he says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. That means the coming one, the anointing one, the redeemer, the savior. He's saying this one who was promised to David is Jesus. He is the son of who? David. And the son of who? Abraham meaning he is a legitimate heir to the throne. Going deeper into the Christmas message, Luke chapter one, verse 30. The uh, angel Gabriel is talking to Mary. And in Luke 1, 30, it says this. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Anybody know what the name Jesus means? That's Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus or Yeshua means the Lord is salvation or Yahweh is salvation. So he says his name shall be Jesus or Yahweh is salvation. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Yaakov forever and his kingdom will have no end. Zechariah who is the father of John the Baptist and Luke 1:67 says this and his father Zacharias was filled with the holy spirit and prophesied saying blessed be the lord god of israel for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of david his servant does anybody know what the horn of salvation is? So the horn is represented three times specifically in the Old Testament. Does anybody know what it, it, it does represent salvation, but three parts of salvation. So in the Old Testament, the horn was found where? The horns on the altar. There were the four horns of the altar. And there, what took place? The atonement for sin. So the horn was representative of atoning work of sin. The second way the horns were represented is in the Old Testament, if someone grabbed onto the horn and clung to it, what did they have? Refuge. It was a sanctuary city. If they held onto the horn, they were safe. 
and people couldn't kill them until they released it. So the horn is uh, representative of the atoning of sin, refuge from your enemies, and then the third is the horn of oil. Remember when Samuel went to David, what did he take? A horn of oil, and what did he do with it? He poured it, he anointed David, and then what happened to David? The Spirit of God fell upon him. And David was empowered mightily before the Lord. So Zacharias is saying, Jesus, this one, the servant of David, is the horn of Israel. He is the one where the atoning sin is made well, our Passover lamb. He is the one in whom refuge is from our enemies. Again, a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And he is the one in whom we are anointed or filled with God's spirit. God, when he was talking to David, said verses 12 through 15, I'm dealing with Solomon, but I have the son of David, Jesus Christ coming, greater than David. So Jesus is baptized. God says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then Jesus goes into the wilderness, 40 days and 40 nights. He is there being tempted by Satan. He comes out, his earthly ministry begins. And what is Jesus' very first message? The very, very first message of his ministry. Repent. Why? For the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus says, I am the coming king. I am the son of David. I am the fulfillment of Abraham and David. It's me. The kingdom of God is at hand. And this king is greater than David. This king is greater than David. How do we know that? Mark chapter 12. We're not gonna go into this too in depth. I'm gonna save this for another time, but Mark chapter 12, verse 35. Jesus is, began teaching and he taught in the temple. How is it, now he's asking a question to all the scribes. How is it that the scribes say, the Christ is the son of David? When David himself said in the Holy Spirit, Psalm chapter 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Verse 37, David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. What was the point Jesus made there? David, when writing Psalm 110, says of the coming Messiah, he calls him Lord. Now in Middle Eastern culture, coming from the Middle Eastern culture is a very patriarchal hierarchy. The eldest male runs the family. When he dies, the next eldest male runs the family and so on and so forth. The son or the father would never in a million years call his son Lord, never. So what is Jesus making? What point is he making here? That David, as he's empowered by the Holy Spirit, writing the Holy Scripture, acknowledges Jesus as what? Greater than him. 
that Jesus is not only the root of David or the branch of David, but he's also the root, greater than, far more powerful. God was gonna make David's name great, but the one, the son of David, he was even greater. Revelation 22, verse 16. It's uh, the fifth to last verse in all the Bible. And it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify you to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. What does it mean that Jesus says of David, I'm the root of David? What does it mean? Jesus is the creator of David. Remember Jesus in the white spaces before Genesis 1. Jesus saying, I created David, and to fulfill that Davidic covenant, I also came from David. So Jesus is the fulfillment, and he is far greater than David. Which means what? If Jesus came, where's his kingdom? If Jesus came, where's his kingdom? It's here. So who are his subjects? You. You. Where Christ rules and reigns, he's king. If you call Jesus Lord, that makes you what? Slave. If you call Jesus king, that makes you what? Subject. It's here. It's now. So what does it take to be a good citizen? Let's not even say spiritually, just in general. What does it take to be a good citizen? Obey the law. Obey the law and you'll be a good citizen. Galatians chapter six, verse two, bear one another's burdens for this is the law of Christ. So as citizens in Christ's kingdom, in the here and the now, what are we called to do? Obey the law. What is the law? Mark chapter 12. This is just before, by the way, when Jesus says he's greater than David. Mark 12, starting at verse 28. Mark 12, 28. One of the scribes came and heard him heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the fourth most of all? And Jesus answered, the fourth most is, hear, O Israel, the Lord Our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated he is one. He's monotheistic and there is no one else besides him and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Listen to the Lord's response, verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of of God. And after that, no one ventured to ask him any more questions. 
So what is the law of Christ? Love God, love people, all the law and the prophets hang on that. As good citizens of the kingdom of God, we are to love. Number two, and I'm just gonna quickly run with this one. We are to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Ambassadors of Jesus Christ. What is an ambassador? A representative of the king on foreign soil. We are to represent Christ by obeying the law and going out into all the nations, making disciples, teaching them to obey all things, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And that's why I said, Jesus says, teaching them to obey. Why? Because now they're a kingdom citizen and they must obey the law, which is the law of Christ. And so that's an introduction into uh, the king and his coming kingdom. And as we get into uh, Isaiah and definitely into the Psalms, we'll be breaking that down much more. Father, we just thank you for this time in which we can gather. We thank you, God, for your faithfulness, even when times are tough. Uh, you are just so faithful, God. You are so good, and uh, we just thank you. We thank you for uh, all that you've done, all that you will do. We thank you that Jesus is the Messiah, the King, the Son of David, the fulfillment of Abraham, our Passover lamb, our creator God, and as our sister Agnes said, our friend. We are called friends. Lord, you are too good to us. You are too kind to us. Forgive us of our sin. May we be law-abiding citizens and we, may we grow your kingdom one soul at a time. In Jesus' name, amen. that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.